Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. A busy Friday show, as you might imagine. We'll talk to Lori Turnbull about the scene on the federal political side of things. We've got a great Chatterbox segment with two new panelists, including our own Alan Cross uh, from CFNY and Q107 uh, and the ongoing history of new music. I'm such a fan. And uh, Alan digs deep into... Uh, other issues uh, beyond music, and we love that. I love talking music with him, but he was great on Chatterbox this morning, and I hope you'll listen to that and much, much more on the Toronto Today podcast for a Friday, which begins now. Let's start with uh, how we didn't expect maybe 24 hours ago to be chatting about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, listen, I'm always worried when uh, older people start trending on Twitter. Very worried about it. I check all the time. Dolly Parton earlier this week was trending on Twitter. What does she want? She's always in the news. And she's uh, this amazing person, right? She did a lot of donations. She um, helped uh, finance the COVID vaccine. But she's 76 years old. And you think, oh, no. Oh, uh, But what Dolly Parton wanted uh, this week was um, that they, she withdrew. She wanted to withdraw her nomination from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She wanted to be out, not in of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She said, I've never really made a rock album. And I'm like thinking to myself, have you been talking to Kelly Cotrera? Stop those conversations. I texted Gord Rennie uh, when they were having a rock hall conversation after I just thought nobody in the, in the city of Toronto could do a rock hall conversation better than I just did. And it was like, it was like I tied the perfect shoe and, and Kelly just reached down without me looking and started untying the shit like a prank. And uh, Gord, I was I was quite rattled because she likes rock and roll. Yes, artists. She doesn't want country artists in R and B artists. She doesn't like. She just thinks rock is rock. Get your own hall. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah okay. A little bit, but I just say change the name to Music Hall of Fame and everything will be fine. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And uh, yeah, like I think Kelly's argument is more like, why do we why do we not put ACDC in the Country Hall of Fame? And I'm like, well, you got a good point there. OK, maybe I won't <laughs> drive into this guardrail out of frustration. But Dolly Parton said that. So that's why she started trending. Why? And, and the Rock Hall, by the way, yesterday said, we're not pulling you from the ballot. Suck it up, buttercup. You're on the ballot. People might vote for you. Now they probably really want her to come and give a speech. Is she going to give a speech after saying she wanted to, to be withdrawn from the nomination? Whatever doesn't cost Duran Duran their nomination, I'm okay with. Let's see where this goes. Okay. All right. My blood pressure, nothing makes my blood pressure rise than the Rock Hall of Fame. So Arnold Schwarzenegger yesterday um, goes and, and puts a nine-minute video together on Twitter. It's brilliant. There's some scripting, but you can tell there's some, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing, and he always has. And you're used to more Arnold videos that uh, are a little like, like say from, you know, he became the king of the one liners, the king of the action movie. It's him going back and forth with Sylvester Stallone in the mid eighties. Take this scene from commando. This is more what you're used to from Arnold. But what is important is gravity. I have to remind you, Sally, this is my week off. Uh, you can't kill me, Matrix. You need me to find your daughter. Where is she? I don't know. I took those. I'll take you where I'm supposed to meet him. But you won't. Why not? Because I already know. Remember, Sally, when I promised to kill you last? That's right, Major. You did. I lied. And there he goes. There goes Sully. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger as John Matrix. That's his name, John Matrix. It was so much fun. I went to see that movie with my dad when I was 13. Just thought that was the greatest thing. 
and blabbed about it probably for two days afterwards. He can do comedy too. So like Arnold can be, you know, relatable from a comedic perspective. Here he is teaching um, kindergartners in a movie that they, you know, surprisingly, but he was a cop undercover teaching kindergartners. And I don't know, they just sort of, you know, gave it some thought and had a big meeting about it. And they called the movie Kindergarten Cop. Now we're going to do something extremely fun. We're going to play a wonderful game called Who is my going to do something extra ah. Now we're going to do something extremely fun. We're going to play a wonderful game called Who is my daddy and what does he do? Yes? Is your daddy a fireman? He's probably big. Is he a wrestler? Is he a basketball coach? No, 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 no. What's the matter? Oh, I have a headache. It might be a tumor. It's not a tumor. It's not a tumor at all. Is he a basketball coach is my favorite part of that. I'm not sure why. But he makes a video yesterday, uh, the former governor of California. I mean, again, think about how implausible that concept was. Oh, you're an actor and you were born in Austria and you just say things like, I'll be back and uh, hasta la vista, baby. And you're going to be the governor of the most populated state in America. Okay, but it is America and things happen. Arnold Donald Trump, Arnold Schwarzenegger yesterday telling the Russian people they're being fed misinformation. It was a brilliant nine minute video. I'm going to update you on Russia and Ukraine, but you need to hear some of this and think about the impact. Think about one of the most recognizable worldwide faces, worldwide names, worldwide voices. I always make the case. I don't think anybody's done uh, who's has been impersonated more by people publicly or people that think they can do an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. You might be able to make the case it's Jack Nicholson, but I don't know if that goes around the world. Arnold is global. Arnold goes around the world. Here's some of what he said yesterday, again, addressing the Russian people and appealing to Vladimir Putin to stop the attack. That ever since I was 14 years old, I've had nothing but affections and respect for the people of Russia. The strength and the heart of the Russian people have always inspired me. That is why I hope that he will let me tell you the truth about the war in Ukraine and what is happening there. No one likes to hear something critical of the government. I understand that. But as a longtime friend of the Russian people, I hope that he will hear what I have to say. And may I remind you that I speak with the same heartfelt concern as I spoke to the American people when there was an attempted insurrection on January 6th last year, when a wild crowd was storming the U.S. Capitol, trying to overthrow our government. You see, there are moments like this that are so wrong, and then we have to speak up. And it's exactly the same with your government. I know that your government has told you that this is a war to denazify Ukraine. <laughs> denazify Ukraine? This is not true. Ukraine is a country with a Jewish president, a Jewish president, I might add, whose father's three brothers were all murdered by the Nazis. You see, Ukraine did not start this war. Neither did nationalists or Nazis. Those in power in the Kremlin started this war. thought that was really, really significant. And imagine that if you're, we're starting to see Russian parents talk about, I watched a video, it was translated obviously, but a Russian woman talk about the fact that her 22-year-old son is off fighting in Ukraine she can't get in touch with him, and she clearly thinks that he's been lied to. He's been deceived. They have clearly 
uh, manipulated their armed forces. And remember, this is a conscripted army, no matter who you are. And that's been the case. That goes back to communist Soviet Union days. And that's been the case for Russia in the last 30 years. If you're a man, you're doing military service at a certain point in time. And there's several European countries that are like that. But what you don't expect is to get put, you know, on a, you know, into a tank and said, go kill Ukrainians, go destroy buildings, drop bombs on hospitals. You don't expect to get told that you're still committing the crime. And that's why we're seeing Russians desert. That's why we're seeing Russians just walk away from their equipment at a point in time as well. Here's more from Schwarzenegger, and he talks about the legacy of his father, which is significant. His father uh, obviously had to go, uh, as an Austrian uh, national, had to go and fight in World War II. That matches up. Schwarzenegger's in his mid-70s. Listen to what he has to say about that. When my father arrived in Leningrad, he was all pumped up on the lies of his government. When he left Leningrad... He was broken, physically and mentally. He lived the rest of his life in pain, pain from a broken back, pain from the shrapnel that always reminded him of these terrible years, and pain from the guilt that he felt. To the Russian soldiers listening to this broadcast, you already know much of the truth that I've been speaking. You have seen it with your own eyes. I don't want you to be broken like my father. This is not the war to defend Russia that your grandfathers or your great-grandfathers fought. This is an illegal war. Your lives, your limbs, your futures are being sacrificed for a senseless war condemned by the entire world. Never forget, uh, a guy waited tables on us in Michigan. We went after uh, a hockey team I worked for, the Saginaw Spirit. We went out for dinner one night, and this is around 2005, let's say. I know because I wasn't a father yet, but I think we were pregnant and uh, and we the guy had a noticeable limp. Okay, the the our our waiter had a limp and uh, we started talking about him. He was a uh, Iraq war veteran. He was 22 years old. He'd gone to Iraq when he was 19 and a half in the spring of 2003. So this is probably November of 05. It's two and a half years later. He did a tour of duty that was 13, 14 months. He was telling us all about it. And I'm thinking, every time he walks, he thinks of it. Every time he gets up in the morning and has to stretch out that leg, like it was a noticeable, decided limp. Okay, And that's just a limp. That's not losing an arm. That's not losing a leg. That's not losing your hearing. He's able to be relatively able-bodied, and he's able to do that job. But I remember thinking about that, and that's the plea Schwarzenegger's making right there. You'll think about that. You'll think about that when someone says, hey, would you like to go for uh, you know, a, a bike ride or play tennis or run? Well, maybe he can do some of those things, but not as well as he would have had he not gone to Iraq. What's it all for? And that has to be the plea. You have to make things relatable at a personal level in a lot of contexts, but that's exactly why Schwarzenegger is so brilliant there and doing everything that he's trying to do right there. This is a massive fight, and it's not over, and we don't know where this is going to go. We said earlier this week, there's a lot of chit-chat about, can this be negotiated out of? But if Russia slinks away, destroys the entire country in essence, they've dropped bombs everywhere, they've ruined cities, what's the reparation? If Vladimir Putin, I saw a report last night, he's worth $100 billion. That's what he is worth. Okay. This is why he can fire a thousand people that he's worried about. He's worried about getting poisoned and he can take a thousand people that have any sort of 
tertiary, let alone primary access to them, and he can fire them and bring in a thousand more. This is why he can do that. But what's the check to write to Ukraine? And how does it ever make up for the loss of life? The fear, the terror, getting people back. People are going to assimilate here in Canada, and we will have those people for three years. And that's good. And they'll go to the United States, and they'll go to uh, the UK and Germany and Scandinavian countries, and, and they'll scatter. Will they come back? What's left to come back to? What will be there? I, I Honestly, if you've lost everything, why would you go back? You know that feeling. You know that feeling. Even, even empty nesters know that feeling. They're like, ah, oh, this is where we had our kids, or this is where I got divorced, or this is where you know someone I care about passed away. I can't, I can't stay in this environment. Imagine an entire country feeling like that. It's unbelievable. The Schwarzenegger audio was just remarkable, and we'll drop a little more on you as the morning continues. Let's welcome on to the line a conservative activist, Urs here. Urs, it's great to have you on. Hi, great to be on. Thanks for Awesome. Asking. Is this too early? I never know who's a morning person and who isn't. Are you? Like, how would you rate yourself out of 10 for being a morning human being? Uh, <laughs> okay, that's about a four. That groan was about a three and a half for a... I do wake up early, but yes. I go back to sleep sometimes. We'll, we'll give that movie four yawns. Um, Alan Cross. I feel like... I don't think... Like, I think of you as an evening guy. You're at shows. You're out there. I feel like you're up at 2.30 in the morning. Musicologist, host of the ongoing history of new music. Is this early for you? No, I've been up for a while. I, <laughs> I start my days uh, quite early in the morning. Okay. I mean, but, but it's, uh, you know, do you, do you sleep? Well, like what's the average amount of sleep you pull in, Alan? Oh, I, no, I'm, I'm in bed before 10 o'clock. Oh my heavens. I wish I could. I don't have the discipline to do that. I, uh, oh, my body says, uh, you're going to uh, bed at nine fifty five whether you want to or not. Um, and Alan, you got to forgive me. And Urge, you got to forgive me. Also, I'm a little antsy today, Alan. Duran Duran tickets for Bud Stage go on sale at 10 o'clock. I know you know yeah. that they're, they're, they're yeah. returning. The prodigal sons return. Yeah. This is Duran Duran. <laughs> This is going to be a big tour for them because they're on the ballot for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So uh, a lot of people are, are reinterested in, in Duran Duran these days. What do you make of that Dolly Parton thing? Let's go to the big issue of the week. Do- uh, Dolly doesn't want to be on, and they're like, too bad. You're staying on the you're staying on the ballot. I love that. Yeah, so the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame rejected her rejection of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, and the I issue no is that the, uh, the ballots have already gone out. So there's there's no uh, people have already voted for her. So it's like, yeah, thank you, Dolly, for making room or, or you know, bowing out. Uh, but it, it's too late. People have already voted for you. So what, what's going to be interesting is if she does make the list of nominees, what then does she show up? Does she get inducted? Well, she will get inducted, but yeah. she won't be there. And what I find really you know, rather interesting yeah. is that this this will put her in the same category as as the Sex Pistols who were nominated and voted yeah. into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and didn't show up. That's right. So so Dolly, what, what Dolly Parton is doing is every bit as punk as what the Sex Pistols did. And as John Lydon put it, well, one of them couldn't show up because he was dead. So that yeah. that factored in also. So Yes. Um, let's, let's, I, I'm dying to talk more about sort of where we're going with getting back to things. I know pubs were packed yesterday and we'll get there. We'll get to Pierre Polyev, CPC leadership as well. Or let's start with you regarding COVID. I, this is what I saw yesterday from the Ontario Science Table. They forecast, I thought it was almost a shrug of the shoulders. We've got a so-called new variant on the way, but many people document, every epidemiologist I listen to says, the current vaccines cover that variant. We haven't had a, vac- a vaccine yet that the variant can sort of squeeze past. Yes, you can transmit the virus to other people, but you're protected from severe illness and hospitalization. So 
it feels like the worst is well over. What is like? What do you think our society's confidence level is for the next couple weeks as we move forward into April? So I think we have to look at global trends too, right? What's being normalized in other places? I was just in the U.S. over Family Day weekend, and mm. there were no masks required to go into anywhere. You know, fill in gas, go into the gas station. You don't have to worry about your mask, and you know, it felt nice, but you know, going to restaurants, et cetera, you could still see some people had masks on and others did not. There was no requirement. And I think that's where we're heading to. I think we, we, we know that this is a global pandemic. So whatever's happening in Europe will have happened before it's happening here, uh, most likely. So, you know, I think, I think we need to still um, have our masks handy when you feel like it's a crowded place, mm-hmm. put it on. Um, but for sure, I think our vaccinations are helping us uh, not having to face severe chronic illnesses because of or, or symptoms because of um, mm-hmm. the virus. I think the vaccinations are definitely helping us. And I would say, you know, vaccination is still the way to go. Have your mask handy and let's start to live life. Alan, how's it how's it strike you? We know that, you know, friendships have been split over, you know, vaccination policies or how fast somebody wants to go versus another. Husbands and wives have argued about it. Husbands and and are sorry, I should say brothers and sisters have. Um, where do you think we all go in the next three weeks? And what's been most frustrating, obviously, is feeling like we're getting back out there. Look at the reopening of Massey Hall last year. We're back. It's open for a couple of weeks. Boom, Omicron hits. And we got to we got to then take two steps forward and about nine steps back. How do you think it goes over the next month? I suffer personally from something that's been called coronaphobia. I have been put into a uh, routine where I have a mask with me wherever I go, and I'm I'm cautious. Uh, all my friends are also very very cautious. I had a conversation with somebody the other night who says that yeah, you know what, this is uh, this is great that things are loosening up and the restrictions are falling away, but I'm going to have a mask in my pocket. Uh, for the foreseeable future, uh, especially in, in, in crowded areas. Whether that's right or wrong doesn't matter. I think it's a matter of personal choice. And certainly, uh, you know, what is your own level uh, of risk? I personally would love to ditch masks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I would have been, I think, a little bit more comfortable if the uh, mask mandates had come off uh, in about two weeks from now after spring break and then we would have seen what happened there because a lot of people are going to be traveling you know our infection rates going to go up our hospitalizations going to increase it's i would have been a little happier to wait another two weeks but i'm you know a naturally cautious person Urs, i think alan makes a great point in that we, we've got our areas where we know it's almost purely theatrical like if you're going to the gym it's rather silly to put it on when you wander from the treadmill to a machine or you go to the movie and it's on in the hallway and then you eat popcorn for an hour straight but but there are those settings right where you do have it on the entire time grocery stores retail if you do have to go to the dentist's office or the or the, or the doctors those are the ones i think that are that are people are gonna feel a little i will too i feel a little self-conscious the first time you walk into a sobeys and you don't have a mask on and others do we'll we'll, we'll feel like everyone's staring at us as opposed to the other way around I got a note from well, I got a note from my gym saying that as of Monday masks will be optional. Uh, I'm you know if I'm if I'm the only one there, fine. But if it's crowded, no, I'm sticking with it. So that grunting for those bench presses gets even louder, Alan. That's you got to uh, think of it. Like you can't muffle it anymore with your. Yeah, uh, there's, there's, there's nothing more gross than a paper 
paper face mask after about 45 minutes on a treadmill. <laughs> so, Urs, you, you may follow this uh, incredibly closely. I, I'm real curious to know where uh, this lands. I was saying earlier to, to Laurie Turnbull, who we had on the 6 o'clock hour uh, from Dalhousie University, kind of a quiet week for CP leadership candidates. Um, we've seen Pierre Paglia videos. He put another one out talking about there's no left, there's no right in Canada. And whether we agree with the principle or not, Pierre does get us talking. Really quiet week from Patrick Brown. Really quiet week from Jean Charest and Leslin Lewis. What's your thought? And I know we want to talk about the, the NICAP ban as well, because that was a controversial issue between Polyev and Brown. What's Pierre's strategy? This is a long race headed towards September. He's really out there with coverage and making sure people are talking about him more than the other candidates. Yeah. So, you know, I think Pierre has always liked to publish videos on social media and for many, it's attractive. It's fun to watch. And that's what it is. It's a performance. But this week, you know, he actually shocked Canadians when he chose to deny that there was no niqab ban happening mm. um, that ever happened. And, you know, if you just Google it, it's all over the news from 2015. This, of course, struck a chord. And um, as a longtime conservative myself, a visible Muslim woman, you know, I could not believe that he chose to lie to Canadians, you know, just blatantly like that and and spew misinformation. I, I published the op-ed yesterday, um, this week in the Star, and for me, you know, the party's 2015 campaign rocked my conservative identity and nearly drove me out of politics entirely. Um, you know, the, the party pursued a ban on niqabs during citizenship oath, a policy that the courts shot down. Party also introduced barbaric cultural practices hotline, and you know at the 2016 party or 2015 party convention, no, rather 2016, sorry, in Vancouver, I stood up and I and I told in a feedback session party about, um, you know that this was a mistake. Uh, it was a party platform that should never have been, or rather, an election platform to uh, create a wedge issue with Canadians and, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's how we lost the election. And so what Pierre did this week was insulting to Canadians. And my view is that if Pierre is elected leader of the party, Canadians will have zero tolerance for someone who's doubled down on these kind of divisive policies of the past. Let me follow up, Urs, with you on that. And then I want to get Alan's perspective. But how far will all the leaders go about Bill 21? I think they all left most of us, most of us, wanting a little bit in 2019. Even Jagmeet Singh did. And there was a little more discussion of it in 2021, but it just seemed to be that issue that uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, Aaron O'Toole, they almost left it, said, well, Quebec is Quebec. And and their MPs were telling them, hey, it's a pretty unique circumstance in Quebec. Just leave this alone. I don't know that that's, that that's doing the right thing, and I don't know what that political strategy is like. Do you think, bottom line, do you think we get more vocal leaders about it the next election about what Quebec's government's doing? I... I believe Patrick Brown will raise it. I think it'll come up and um, probably with all party leaders, I am pretty sure Jagmeet will raise it. Um, and I think uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will have to raise it if if it comes up enough. And I think um, it will come up. Uh, Patrick Brown's done a lot of work around uh, Bill 21 and uh, getting municipal leaders to offer support uh, to fight this down and um you know and i and i think it's created a lot of buzz in the recent uh few months and i think it'll continue to remain an issue uh for canadians 
Alan, Alan, is this an issue that we all evolve on and finally get on the right side? I often document Barack Obama when he ran for uh, president and, and through the primary process before 2008, he was anti-gay marriage. Like that seems really hard to believe. It's only 14 years ago. But we evolve and, and get to the right side of issues where we just and, and we're there in Canada, really, with that was the problem with Andrew Scheer, wasn't it? Was he wouldn't take things like gay marriage or or pro-life or or abortion laws. He wouldn't take them off the table. Where does this one go? I'm not really sure. I mean, you're right. Quebec is Quebec. That is a, a, a completely you know, different situation when it comes to the rest of the country. I'm not really sure where it goes. But I, I think what we're seeing now is uh, all the, the conservative leaders sort of launching trial balloons, doing a little bit of research, doing some internal polling, doing some exter- external polling to find out exactly what the level of populism is in the country right now because you know there is the uh, the state of donald trump there there is what happened in ottawa last month with the truckers convoy um the conservatives are looking for some sort of way forward so they're they're looking for these 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 hot button issues things that they can galvanize canadians around or maybe a sufficient number of canadians around so they can uh, you know win the next election which of those candidates is is going to be successful in september is is a that's a long way, long way off, and, and there's there's no front runner, no no mm. favorite just yet. We'll, we'll wait and see. It, it's interesting, or is Alan, uh, you know, documents that there's so many uh, a race can change so often, and we mm-hmm. saw that with the Democrats in the states. Joe Biden looked dead in the water in Iowa and New Hampshire, and all of a sudden. The Red Sea parted, candidates dropped out, and, and they must have told themselves internally through that polling and through that analysis, we think he's the best bet to beat Donald Trump. We're not sure any of the other candidates can. And that's really what the CPC has to determine here. Like, these are two contests. There's who who do we align the most with? But then you got to ask yourself, who can beat Justin Trudeau if he runs again? They're two different conversations sometimes. Well, they, they are. And and they, the, the conservatives need like a, a, a leader that, conservatives can rally behind which has been a problem since i guess what stephen harper mm-hmm. so it's it's going to be rather interesting we we've, we need a leader of the conservative party and then we need a somebody who can take yeah. on uh, justin trudeau in the next uh prime ministerial election and and Urs, you saw this too with the liberals they they just couldn't get out of their own way stefan dion michael ignatchev i mean nobody in the conservative party they kind of just shrugged their shoulders and said if that's the best you can offer next election like like sign us up we're ready to go yeah correct. exactly correct um, you know, and I think we saw this with um, um, Bernie in the U.S. as well, right? So popular, but he wouldn't be able to to win against uh, the competition. So we have to see somebody who can appeal to the general mm. public and um, and also be the conservative leader. Yeah. Yep. You got to you got to sometimes. Uh, yeah, you got you got to check both boxes uh, sometimes or or it doesn't work out and you're left on the outside looking in. That's Urs here. Alan Cross. Love having you guys on this morning. Thank you very much. And, and we'll do this again. I really appreciate it. And you guys have a great weekend. You bet. Thank you. You too. Urs here and Alan Cross. You know, earlier this week, four days ago, Monday, it was National Napping Day. And I thought, OK, that's that's my kind of holiday. And then today is World Sleep Day. Why we can't make it World Napping Day? We got to get all the other countries aligned. I mean, we we can unite about this and that, but about naps? Are you kidding? Gord Rennie, a good nap? Oh, yeah. After, thank you. Yeah. Um, and I've done, uh, it's a weird thing, because my first ever job was uh, waiting, ta- or busing tables and then waiting tables at Joe Cool's in London, Ontario. And the shift was 4.30 p.m., 
to 2 a.m. So I get this job. I'm so excited about it. It was the coolest place to work. And then my parents are like, you're in tw- you're in 12th grade. You're taking OAC courses. We'd like to get you to university somehow, some way. And uh, and I'm like, I know. But then they'd had, you know, I'd be getting home at like 2:30, going to an 8:30 home room. Not a lot of time for homework. And then the juxtaposed to that is staying up late night all through college because that's what you do in college is doing early morning radio. And I've done this sort of shift since, what, 2001 to 2007. Then I did afternoons when I came back here to course. And then I did mornings from 2010 to about 2019, all told, give or take one year, and and mornings again. So the only time people ever say to me, hey, how do you do it? Well, it's not it's not my uh you know it's not my uh, effervescent personality it's not it's not my cooking it's not how messy my garage looks when they say we don't know how you do it it's the getting up early and the going to bed kind of late so our next guest i've been looking forward to this conversation all week because she may be able to help me and you i hear from enough listeners that don't sleep well at night alana mcginn is a sleep expert uh and her website is fascinating i've been perusing it already good night sleep site Spelled S-I-T-E, goodnight sleep site, all one word, dot com. Alana, welcome to Toronto today. It's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time for us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Did I describe one of the weirdest, uh, you know, you're up till two in the morning, three in the morning when you're in your teens and 20s and you can't get a, I, I can't even get my kids to bed before midnight now. They're 13 and 16. And so when they're two and a half hours up after dad is starting, the lights are starting to flicker on dad's eyeballs. We, we got a household with some sleep problems. Yeah, well, you know, I always say the irony is never lost when I'm doing early morning shows, the, the time that you have to get up <laughs> to do these morning shows. But you know what, that's an issue that we're seeing, especially with our tweens and teens, is that a lot of their schedule, their school schedule, having to get up so early for to go to school, it's actually working against their natural body clock. You know, tweens and teens, their melatonin is released later at night. So they're more of those night owls, right? They tend to go to bed later, they need to wake up later, but they're not allowed, they're not able to do that because of the time that some of these kids have to get up just to catch the bus to get to high school. And some of it is the level of communication and the technology, right? They can talk to their friends all night. Your your parents and my parents, if we, if we were on the phone with a boy or girl, they would have burst into our room at 11.05 going, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I hear voices around my household around 12.30 at night. And I'm thinking, how is how are other parents is okay with, with this household that you guys are up doing this and then sleeping six hours and going to high school? That's no good. Absolutely. And my dad actually did do that when I was a kid. Burst right in, did he? Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, that's a huge issue. Tech is definitely a huge issue for all ages, but we're definitely seeing it with our tweens and teens is that there's no boundaries, right? So they're up on their devices, whether it's chatting with friends, whether it's watching YouTube, social media, till all hours of the night. So, you know, it, it is a conversation that needs to happen in a household. I always say, you know, have that family sleep meeting where you guys can sit down and work towards common goals, common sleep goals that we can all work towards. Mm. But they also need to be seeing that we as parents, you know, if we're telling our kids not to bring our phones into our bedroom, we kind of have to model that behavior as well. So maybe, you know, set up something like a family docking station in an area, for instance, in my house, it's in our kitchen. So we all plug in our devices overnight. It keeps them, you know, I have a 14-year-old daughter as well, keeps them out of our bedrooms. Um, and we remove tech because it's, it's probably mm. the number one sleep buster. And the dumbest thing I do is I say, well, my alarms, I said like three different alarms to get up starting at 345. And the dumbest thing I say, Alana, is my alarms are on my phone. But then you get a little restless and you reach for your phone and you're like, who won that basketball game? What's going on in the news? Is is there something? And we just reach. And if, if it wasn't, if we had a proper alarm clock like we all used to have, we wouldn't do that. 
Yeah, you know what? It's a it's a fight that I hear all the time. Uh, I'm going to get a bumper sticker made that says "Stores <laughs> still sell alarm clocks." Right? Listen, if you could be that person that can just use your phone as your alarm clock, then I'm not going to tell you to remove it, right? But if you know yourself. You you admitted it yourself, right? You know that it's probably the last thing you look at at night. It's probably the first thing you look at in the morning. Mm. So if you are doing that maybe just buy an actual alarm clock and keep the phone out. Alana McGinn is our guest. Her website, uh, by the way, I mentioned it earlier, goodnightsleepsite.com. Are there people, I always think, well, there's people that can have one drink and they stop there. And there's people that can eat anything and we marvel at it. And we're like, where do you put it all? You look amazing. Are there people, I'm, I'm sometimes skeptical about one size fits all health recommendations. Any listener would know that listening to me. So are there some people, Alana, that can do really, really well, whether it's their DNA or their composition or whatever, and they can get by on five hours sleep. And there's others that need like eight, eight and a half. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right, especially with sleep. There is not, there isn't a one size fits all kind of belief. Um, you know, studies do show that on average, we should be getting those seven to eight hours. But that's not to say that some people can do five on six. Or some people might need even more on nine. So we all have our personal own sleep needs, what we need. There are some individuals who can drink a cup of coffee after dinner. I envy those people. And some that really have to just have that one cup of coffee, that caffeine in the morning, and that's it. So you know what are your triggers. You know what you're more sensitive to. You know the amount of sleep that you need that really makes you feel like you're functioning at your best optimal health. That's what you should be aiming towards. And it may not be the same as the person you're sleeping beside or the the person you're working with. Let's go there. Do men and women sleep differently? Do they have different needs? Do they have different patterns that, over studies that would look at demographics like that? They, you know, a recent study came out about a year ago that actually showed that women need 20 more minutes of sleep per night than men. And we're not getting it. Um, and that's for different reasons. You know, we as women go through different hormonal shifts throughout the, throughout the night. Um, women tend to be a bit lighter sleeps when it comes to our kids' sleeps and things like that. Um, but I think the main reason why that is, is, and this is no, no offense to men, to the men that are listening. None to taken, yourself. of course. Whatever you're going to say, I never take offense to people ripping on men. Never. Go ahead. <laughs> but I also feel that we, if we look at our brain as computer tabs, women tend to have more tabs open, right? We tend to, um, <laughs> uh, to, to multifunction maybe a little bit better and a little bit more. So because of that, I think our minds are a lot busier. It's harder, perhaps, for us to quiet our minds at night, which is why we're getting less sleep when we actually should be getting more than men. You mentioned caffeine. Is it is it as serious? I mean, it's it's probably the the thing that is hardest for people to give up. If you said, Greg, give something up, boy, caffeine, getting those those two big XL coffees in the morning and they're gone by like eight oh five, three hours after I'm awake or four hours after I'm awake. I wouldn't want to give that up for anything, but but it, the later in the day coffees, as you know, there's people that just should avoid it at all costs after a certain hour, shouldn't they? Absolutely. I mean, if you know that you're sensitive to caffeine, and it's not just coffee, it could be pop, soda, uh, ca- chocolate, anything like that, iced tea, tea, um, then yeah, you, I would say by noon on to try and not have any. Um, you know, you can still have your coffees in the morning, uh, but if you know that you're a little bit more sensitive, it's going to keep you up at night. Try to eliminate it by noon on. Noon on, huh? Yeah, there's a lot of people that love that mid-afternoon. And again, I'm not used to a nine to five schedule, although my, uh, you know, my eyes are sort of always open uh, to, to watch for this and watch for that. What's like, I'd ask you what an ideal nap length is, but I always bristle when someone says, well, it's half an hour, it's 40 minutes, because how I do it is I probably sleep 
to be honest, five, five and a half hours at night, and I try and gain about maybe 90 minutes to two hours back in the daytime. That's unusual, but is there a set time that works for the average uh, Joe or Jennifer? There is. Actually, NASA came up with this, uh, came out with a study that said that the, the best timing for naps is 20 minutes. That allows you to stay. You know when you go to sleep for a nap and you feel worse than when you originally went to went to bed for that nap? Oh, yeah. All, all the time. Yes. Yeah. And that's when it's because of when you're waking up from that nap. So if you're taking a 30 to 60 minute nap, you're likely waking up in a deeper state of sleep. So you're going to feel that sleep hangover. So aim for a 15 to 20 minute nap. That's going to enough time to keep you afresh, feel fresh and, and alert and creative or go for the full 90 minutes. That's a full cycle of sleep. So when you wake up, you're in that lighter state of sleep. Do you, are you spotting, and I bet the pandemic factors in, I bet uh, I, you know right. the isolation that we've been under factors in, um, are you seeing and hearing of stats that, that document more insomnia, more sleep apnea, just more struggles, people tossing and turning to get down? 100%. Our sleep has taken a hit for sure throughout the pandemic for different reasons. I think the two main ones is one, stress and anxiety is at an all-time high with everything going on in the world. Right now, it's keeping people up at night for sure. Another reason, too, is because more and more of us are at home and working from home, we're not protecting our bedroom for sleep. And we really need to be doing that, right? We need to be spending 85% of the time we're in bed, we should be sleeping. So we're building that strong association. But now we're Mm. working in our room, we're watching TV in our room, we're, you know what I mean? Like so much stuff is going on in our room, but sleeping well. So we really need to protect that sleep space for sleep. And critical for exercise. I know uh, for people that get up early, a yeah. lot of them listen to the show uh, and people say, well, when do you exercise? And I'm like, if I don't do it before noon and, and I th- then I have to I, I can't do it after in early afternoon. I, I need that nap to recharge. And then the worst thing is trying to go right away when you wake up because because you're groggy. It's it's almost I don't know how people get to the gym at five thirty six in the morning on a normal schedule before they do a nine to five office. Job. I'm envious, but I never could do it. Physical activity is really important. The, the purpose of, you know, our whole day, when we, the moment, from the moment we wake up in the morning, we want to build that strong drive for sleep to help us fall asleep easier. One way of doing that is keeping consistent sleep patterns. Another way of doing that is incorporating physical activity each and every day, at least 30 minutes, even if you can just get in 10 minutes, you know what I mean? So whatever time of day suits you best, um, but physical activity, absolutely getting moving, getting your body moving is super important for our sleep health. I know you're going to tell me and tell our audience, don't fall asleep while you're watching the TV, because I'll tell you two things. One is probably not great for your for your uh, for getting into deep sleep early on. But also, if you fall asleep during a show like three times in a row, your partner really takes it personally. My wife, if, it, if she's like, you'll love this show and I'm nodding off 15 minutes in the first two times. Peaky Blinders was like that. I never, we can't even talk about it in the household because I fell asleep so fast during it. Uh, And that's not a comment on the show. Well, you know what it it is, is it turns the sleep switch off in your brain. Because so many people will say, I fall asleep great to the TV. But you might be sleeping, but your body and your brain still thinks you're awake. So you're not able to get that deep restorative sleep, which is really what we want to work towards, for sure. That's it. That's exactly it. Deep restorative sleep. Love that concept. Alanim, again, sleep expert. Uh, we will direct as many people as we can to your site. Thank you for coming on uh, and, uh, and telling us about the benefits on this World Sleep Day. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, going to get to this Justin Spiros story. I think it's really, really interesting. Or our chat with him uh, in New York City, there's been a lot of um, loudness because New York is loud sometimes about masks and schools and choice and learning loss and going virtual and all that stuff. Um, 
I think you know where I land on uh, on a lot of it. Um, I'm real curious to see how this goes. I don't see this as some significant science experiment uh, to any great extent. You're vaccinated. You've got your N95 mask. You should have been able to wear that way, way earlier. So I'm going to get there in a little bit with Justin, and we'll be able to react to it a ton uh, in the 8 o'clock hour. As Dave Bradley mentioned, that strike averted at Ontario Community Colleges. You know what there's just no tolerance for? None. Zip is the idea of uh, of labor stoppages with anything to do with education. I'm, I understand the, uh, you know, um, the, the union's need to be in on some of these things. I understand that, uh, that you, you have to look at workload and benefits and, and job security, but this was neither time nor place. I did note this the other day. I remember mentioning it on the show Wednesday morning, the Toronto Star editorial. Here's the headline. After two pandemic disrupted years, this is no time to shut down colleges. In the article, this is from the editorial board. So not an individual per se to inflict a strike on students who have endured the past two years would constitute callous disregard for their well-being in their future. When you've lost star editorial board. And again, I'm pro teacher. I fight for them. I advocate for them. They know that they know that. Okay. When you lose, when that language gets used, that phrase callous disregard with regard to the contract standoff at Ontario colleges, Oh, there wouldn't have been the appetite. Not this late in the year. Not just I'm hearing from parents all the time. My kid just got back in person. We're paying full freight. Um, there's less classes on Zoom now than there were at the start of the semester. There's kids finishing second year of university who've been dealing with this, who haven't had any sort of element of normalcy at their university. And they did what they were supposed to do. And they got vaccinated and they followed the rules and they paid their tuition bills and their their understanding of their professors and on and on and on. This was a massive thing to get done. There would have been no public support, no public tolerance for the idea of walking off the workplace. The same as these scant teachers um, who were, you know, videoing themselves sitting in their cars in January when it was minus 20, thinking their workplace was unsafe. You can make the case. Tell, Tell everybody what you need. And people did. We need masks. We need reassurances. We need access to tests. Well, you got a lot of that. You got almost all of that. I could I could absolutely criticize and dig in on the on the provincial government for messing around in December and not moving quickly enough before Christmas, of course. But we're moving to a better place now. And again, Ontario, tremendous hospitalization percentage compared to the other provinces. It's in a remarkable, remarkable spot. Let me bring on Justin Spiro. We talked to him in the fall. I think just as October was getting going, uh, Justin is a guidance counselor in the New York school system, a social worker. And as his Twitter bio indicates, fighting to bring normalcy back to kids after two years of disrupted childhood. He's been constantly working with kids on their mental health, on their socialization, on getting past learning loss, which is there's so many stories coming out. Oh, well, we didn't know that this would happen. And kids are struggling here and there. Really? Because a lot of us were telling you that they would for about 18 months. A lot of us saw the train coming down the tracks and many of you are claiming right now that you did not justin joins me now it's great to have you on tell tell our audience what you've seen in the first several days of mask optional new york city schools your school specifically um i mean a lot of things some surprising some not i mean first off uh i was personally happy to unmask um there are many staff members and many students who made choices in both directions um, and some who change from, you know, day to day, from moment to moment, um, different variations and, you know, all that's fine. 
how are teachers um, in terms of, uh, I suppose, a, a ratio of wearing um, masks and and being understanding that um, that their fellow colleagues uh, now had a choice after so very, very long uh, and after obviously vaccinations. Um, and then and then how did they feel about about the kids doing so? Again, I can only speak from my school and from what I've witnessed, but I've really um, seen no conflict. Right? I, if anything, it's a great j- contrast from Twitter where people are yelling at each other that you should wear a mask, you shouldn't wear a mask. You see kids and co- kids and teachers and colleagues and walking down the halls and in classrooms and one's masked, the one next to them isn't. And it's like nothing. It's like someone has a hat on and someone doesn't. Or someone's wearing red, someone's wearing uh, blue. That wasn't meant to be political. I should have said green and yellow. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, uh, it's you know, it's it's like nothing. It, it's like it's a non-issue. I think that's the area. I mean, that sounds fantastic. Uh, it's like you described a great menu item or something. That's what we all want here uh, in Ontario. I think most of us do. But as you said, um, it's gotten so politically charged. I mean, vaccines and vaccine mandates um, felt felt politicized. And, and I understood why that would be the case. It was getting politicized even way back late in 2020. Uh, you went through, obviously, uh, you know, a, a general election. We went through one of our own last fall. So um, vaccines were, were, were part of those conversations. But I never thought I'd see um, the mask, if you will, as politicized as it ended up getting. Um, it, 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 uh, I, I understood it. And I really understood the, util- the utilization of it prior to any of us getting vaccinated, we all felt it was it was a layer of protection. But the vaccines, I think, for many of us and our kids who got vaccinated kind of changed that game a little bit. Is is that how you see it or am I off? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I, I can't speak for anyone but myself. Right? I think that yeah. had many reasons for wearing a mask, many reasons for taking off the mask, many reasons for continuing to wear the mask. Um, but yeah, I think you know, I was definitely a very uh, fervent mask wearer up until the vaccination. Um, and, you know, now I'm even boosted. So for me, I feel like, you know, when Omicron levels are way down, we can give a thousand reasons, but I feel comfortable being in school maskless. Um, and I think for the kids, it's all different variations, right? Some, you even have some kids who are wearing the mask, but not the proper way that has been recommended above the nose and, and the mouth. And that could be do a combination of habit or that some kids might have body image issues that they talk about and not want to become confident yet showing their full face. Um, but whatever it is, I think from my perspective, what's important is not analyzing or judging or even paying attention really to who's coming into your office or your classroom with a mask on and how high on their face it is or whatever. It's just accepting people as they are and time will take its course and people will get more used to the new normal over time. Justin Spiros, our guest, a school social worker in uh, the New York City school system on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. Were there obvious um, types of children early on that you looked at and said, this is really going to stifle their learning? I'd look at my kids and say, OK, I think there's an understanding of uh, of who they are and and what they do and, and what this will mean. Um, but I didn't, you know, um, but I but I don't have kids that have, you know, a speech problem. I don't have kids who are autistic. I don't have kids that are, are five, six, seven, or eight years old. As you know, most of Europe never masked any kid under the age of 12. And that, that would have been about my threshold. I, I didn't fight it terribly much, but it's weird. I think more about five and six year old kids than I even do my own because I think my kids get it. And I don't think it's stifling learning. Is, is there a demographic or a, uh, a type that you look at and say, this was a massive mistake from the get-go? 
Yeah, I mean, I personally work in a high school, so it's a little different where it's not as obvious which kids it affects the most. Um, I would definitely say, yeah, kids with special needs uh, might have a harder time learning since they already had a harder time learning. Kids who might have different social issues or anxiety issues um, who might have a harder time socializing with the mask on. Uh, but yeah, I mean, outside of my school, j just from everything that uh, I read and see, just like you, I would say definitely the youngest kids. And actually, in New York City, this is still a little controversial. Yeah. They're still masking the toddlers, the two to four year olds still have to mask uh, that the mayor hinted might change in coming days or weeks. But the, the, the theory his thinking behind it is that they, the parents of the five, six, seven year olds have the opportunity to vaccinate. So if they didn't, you know, it's on them. Whereas the toddlers parents didn't have the opportunity to vaccinate. Uh, yeah. I, I look so much at the, uh, at the concept. I always say this, Justin, I, I feel like, now this is sort of a criminal trial. It's like it's like a TV movie or a movie we'd go to, and you have to prove definitive guilt. You need 12 jurors to find the accused uh, guilty. And that's how I feel about evidence of masking kids, and I, I just don't see it. Again, we'd have done anything, and we did do anything and everything summer of 2020, and we even did it for a chunk last spring uh, in 2021. We didn't, we didn't go back to school in, uh, in Ontario after uh after early april we were out all of all of may all of june and most of april so we've made those sacrifices especially post-vaccination especially this month down the line you've got to show me boxes volumes of evidence um that masks would a prevent spread and b prevent uh you know a potential bad outcome for a kid the far by far least susceptible demographic to a bad outcome, depending on the kid, obviously, but that's, that's, that's the demographic. Um, and I didn't, I, I haven't seen it. So it feels like I've gotten, I went from a little more laissez faire about this a year ago going all oh, this won't last much longer to really, you know, so like the, this fall and, and winter, it's just been very much enough's enough for me. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And yeah, I think that, that, that the burden of proof, especially now post universal booster access is really on the, proven intervention is absolutely necessary. Um, so yeah, the toddler thing is really tough because there, we actually didn't even start masking toddlers until August, 2021 in New York city. So they were unmasked for the pre, like for when adults were largely unvaccinated, the toddlers were unmasked and obviously they were also unvaccinated. Now that everyone five plus can be vaccinated and boosted toddlers are the only demographic less being masked. But again, I really think that will change in the very near future. Well, I worry, I worry here in Ontario, we went from, well, you've got to give us the chance to be vaccinated. So, okay. And that was for us, five to 11 was approved a little bit after, um, the U S and, and, uh, uh, you know, had it open, but, but our, um, our health Canada didn't approve it until I want to say late November. So we went through December and January and they were opportunities uh, for five to 11 to get, to get double dosed, but then it became, well, there's not enough vaccinated kids, but that's where me and maybe you and maybe a lot of our listeners throw our arms in the air and said, this was never something to mandate. This was never. It's one thing if someone says to me, well, you needed to go to a ball game. You needed to go to an NHL game. You can't tell the parents of a six year old, um, take a couple shots of this or, or your kid can't come to school. Not after all this to me anyway. Right. But I am also all about like access. So like New yeah. York City, we have um, they publish like some school. The lowest school is like only 12 percent vaccinated all the way up to some schools are like 98% vaccinated, right? 
So I think the same rule should apply for everyone in terms of masks and everything and every school, every parent had the chance, but you have to really define chance. I, I, I do think that the city can do more in providing vaccine buses voluntarily at every school, doing it more frequently, uh, making it easier for working parents who have three jobs and not no childcare to get their children vaccinated mm -hmm. if they want. Um, and also education about the relative risks and benefits um, which children are especially high risk, right? Like we, we, you know, the those are pre-existing conditions who, who are even more need, likely to need to be vaccinated. Um, so we can do more of that. But yeah, I think once you make all those access issues um, addressed, then there shouldn't be holdout for a mandate. Is there an age group, maybe a two-year age group, Justin, that you're most worried about? I hear it among the parents of the little kids too. But I would say that if we're sending kids off to college, um, there's a lot of benchmark events for yeah. 15, 16 year olds uh, that they've lost. They've lost the socialization. Uh, they've lost the ability to sort of almost almost mess up as teenagers, just be teenagers. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think like the if you want to say 15 to 17 year olds or 14 to 16 year olds, whatever, what um, are going to we're going to see that those effects most prominently first. Right. We'll see. Unfortunately, maybe kids failing out of college, not being able to handle it. But I think long term, if you look at the three to five year olds or four to six year olds or whatever the, the younger age groups were, five to seven, they were in kindergarten when COVID started. Right, Those are the kids who down the line, 10 years from now, if we don't have massive, massive investments in recovery, we could see you know, lower graduation rates in 2030 because of all that. Yeah, yeah. Um are are we feeling you, you gave me such confidence with how you described your first week of of mask optional um you you've had to do a lot of work for this this has felt like a, a battle a lot of people have a lot of parents have and and there have been people obviously um who are trustees and and with school boards that that, that have battled maybe they haven't been the ones on twitter but they've battled maybe internally and behind the scenes do you we can't predict a lot of a lot of what's coming or what's been passed with covid but do you feel you've got a confidence that people now will will get the chance to manage their own risk. Families will get their own uh, chance. Schools themselves will get their own chances to manage their risks individually. Um, for the most part, yeah. I mean, there's still some, some quirks in our system. Like we have in New York, there's no vaccine mandate anymore for adults to go to bars, restaurants, clubs, gyms, et cetera. And you can agree or disagree with that, right? I'm not here to opine on that, but just for a, a consistency perspective, teens still need to be vaccinated to play what they call high-risk sports and go to the school prom or dance. So I feel like it should either be all one or the other um, in that respect. So, but for the most part, I think masks are definitely the most visible reminder of COVID and mask mandates for that matter. Um, there will be some kids who are going to mask all of this school year and all of next school year. And that's perfectly fine for whatever reason they choose to mask. Um, but we'll have the, the flexibility and the, the option to unmask I think that goes a long way towards giving people their freedom back. So your school has got the opportunity to have a have an end of year grad or an end of year prom that they that they haven't had since 2019. Yes. Yeah, so we we could have school dances. We could have proms. The only stipulation is that there still there is a vaccine mandate for that. Which again, it's also very confusing. It goes. I know you. I'm sure you follow the Kyrie. Uh, yeah, I saw. I saw my court side on Sunday. <laughs> it's similar to that because like it's the same kids again. Like I, there's no one more pro-vax than me. I've worked so hard last year getting over a thousand New Yorkers vaccinated, including many students in my school. Uh, but just like now you have like the unvaccinated kids be unmasked 
in the classes, but those same kids can't go to a dance as if they're breathing differently on the dance than they are in class. So again, not to minimize that. I don't minimize anyone's, uh, you know, any anything within the system. But to me, having the ability to be maskless in school and have school, much more important than that, honestly, is having a school open five days a week, whether you're, mm-hmm. you know, wearing three masks in school, if it's open five days a week, is still miles better than last year when it was mostly remote. So having a normal semblance of a school day and school week, um, it, it really is a breath of fresh air. Justin Spiro joining us from New York City. Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today, not just today on this Friday, but all week long. We'll see you next week. Kids back to school. Monday's a big day with the optional masking in schools and all indoor areas. It'll feel a little strange to all of us, I think. However, we're going to approach uh, this week and the months to come heading into the spring and summer. I can't wait. I hope you have a great weekend. Thank you so much for listening to the show. And a big shout out to Gord, Rennie, Shiba Siddiqui, Dave Bradley, all such big parts of Toronto today. Couldn't have better teammates uh, if you tried. Thanks so much for listening.